2: On today's podcast, my guest is New York Times best-selling author Chris Herring talking to me about his brilliant book, Blood in the Garden. My name is Justin Hamilton and I'm about to tear apart your defence Jordan style on Big Squid. Hello and thank you for joining me for a podcast I'm very excited about. Like I am super pumped to present this interview with Chris Herring. I've been a long-time fan of Chris's work on the myriad basketball podcast. I listen to yeah, he's a regular guest that pops up on the low post and uh, places like that. I've heard him with Bill Simmons and I've always enjoyed listening to him talk about basketball. I've always enjoyed his uh, written articles. And then Chris announced, uh, I think it was on the Low Post, he announced that his new book, Blood in the Garden, the flagrant history of the 90s New York Knicks, was coming out. And I immediately got online, didn't think twice, and ordered it. I ordered it, and that was months out. <laughs> like, I ordered it so quickly that... When I saw that it was eventually coming out, it was like this nice, oh, that's right, I ordered that book. So, anyway, it finally arrives, and I'm one of those people who likes to have a few books going at the same time. So, like, as an example, I'm reading uh, a book about the history of uh, J.R. Robert Oppenheimer, and uh, I'm also reading uh, another book about UFO abductions in, in Australia, and, you know, as you can tell, I'm just someone who... I need a different books for different moods. Anyway, I started reading uh, Chris's book and the other books just slowly got pushed to one side and I devoured it. I just devoured it and loved it. This is a book about the New York Knicks of the 90s who were incredibly important to that decade, but not in ways that you would think a team or an athlete would be in the traditional sense, like normally when you talk about someone being important, it's because of the the championships they won, or or even maybe they just did something really awful, like uh, gambled on a result or something like that. But the Knicks aren't like that. It's it's much more complicated. It's absolutely fascinating, and this book is really entertaining. And if you love the NBA, you're gonna get right into it. And if you're not a fan of the NBA, It doesn't matter. It's so full of interesting characters and fascinating stories. You'll be entertained as well. So, as an example, I lent it to a mate of mine who read it. She has no interest in sport in general. And she definitely didn't know the story of the 90s New York Knicks. And she loved it. And she said to me, and I mentioned this in the podcast, she loved it the way she loved the movie Moneyball. So, for a lot of people in the States who follow... Baseball, they, they knew that story. But for me and my friend, we we didn't know that story. And that's one of her favourite movies. It's one of my favourite movies. And I feel like this has got a, a little flavour of that, especially for those of you who don't know the story. Uh, also, there's a lot of you that uh, watched the Jordan Docco, The Last Dance, and this is a story that is taking place at the same time the Bulls are winning those championships. So, yeah. <laughs> You could say this is the Rosencrantz and Guildenstern of The Last Dance. Damn, I wish I'd thought of that reference when I was talking to Chris. God, moments of inspiration just sometimes come too late. Anyway, as I said before, this book is full of fascinating characters and shines a light on a time that feels antiquated in many ways, but is also hinting at the future that is just around the corner. I love this book and I love talking to Chris, who was very generous, not only with his answers, but also his time. Uh, Before we bring Chris in, I'd like to give my Patreon shout out for the episode uh, over at patreon.com forward slash Justin Hamilton underscore big squid. You can sign up and receive bonus podcasts, scripts, and all sorts of extras. And also when you sign up, you receive an episode that is dedicated to you. And today's shout out goes to Anthony Pride, who, look, Anthony, I know you're more of a science fiction fan from the correspondence that we've had in the past, but I think you're going to find this podcast really entertaining. And, you know, who knows? Maybe it'll turn you into an NBA fan. Anthony, if you're deciding you're going to become an NBA fan and you really like championships, really listen closely (laughs) to this podcast and maybe don't pick the Knicks. But if you enjoy roller coasters... (laughs) then this might be the team for you. Uh, so anyway, it might turn you into an NBA fan. It might not. It doesn't matter. Uh, thanks for your support, Anthony, and I hope you're well. I honestly thought I was going to have about 30 or 40 minutes with our uh, uh, with Chris today, and uh, he gave me so much more time, and I loved every second of it, so I'm not going to waste any more time other than to get into it, and uh, let's bring in the brilliant Chris Herring. Uh, a real thrill to have you here, Chris. I've been uh, listening to you for quite a while now. You're one of my uh, favourite guests on uh, Zach Lowe's podcast. And, uh, you know, when you, when you started writing this book, was there any point in the process that you thought, one day I'll be talking to someone from Australia <laughs> about this?
1: Ah, uh, gosh, probably not. Uh, but I, I I think now, there I think there are a couple of people I've spoken to out there um because I, I and i know because each time i've had to kind of figure out had to try to figure out um accommodations for what time it is there versus wow. what time it is in the states but I, I think between that and brazil and um you know i, th- I think in the uk just uh, it tells you how many basketball fans there are all over the world and you know in some cases just nick fans um all the people that have asked me if there's um you know a, a version that will be coming out in a different language right. um if if i have any indication about how the um the audiobook or the kindle version will work somewhere else in another country that they don't have access to it yet so i know for a fact that there are just a lot of people that are very passionate about this um all over the place and it it means the world to me personally but i also know that a whole lot of it has to do with with the knicks and their reach or just the '90s NBA, which. uh a lot of people cared a lot about.
2: Yeah, it's a, it's a, such an interesting era. It, in Australia, The like the, when I first got into the NBA, the first two finals I ever saw was uh, Philadelphia beating the Lakers 4-0 in 83. And then the following year, uh, the Boston Celtics beating the Lakers 4-3. And all my friends were Larry Bird fans or Dr. J fans. And I followed the Lakers and I followed Magic Johnson. But this will show you how young I was and how naive I was, for me, following the Lakers was the equivalent of following the uh, Memphis Grizzlies uh, now. Do you know what I mean? I had no idea that (laughs) LA was LA, so I always felt, you know, oh yeah, my poor little team that always gets picked on. (laughs) (laughs) Then I grew up, I went, oh, I really had this incredibly wrong. But What's fascinating is, you know, we didn't get the finals for a while, so I would follow the scores in the paper like a day and a half later. And then I would read the magazines that came out three months later. So the 90s was actually when we started getting games uh, sent to us regularly. So this uh, Knicks team was quite indelible for me. Uh, For people who don't uh, know that much about uh, the New York Knicks specifically... uh, What attracted you to writing about them? Sure. Well,
1: um, in particular, I I covered the team, not during that era, because I was a little boy. I was four years old um, when they first hired Pat Riley in 1991. So I was not of an age to have watched them or really understood anything about what was happening back then. But um, I covered the Knicks later from 2012 to 2016, uh, during a time when they had Carmelo Anthony and I just remember there being so many times that people would, when they would complain about how horrible those Knicks were, um, that they would always reference, you know, if the team wasn't playing hard or something like that, they would always reference the the earlier Knicks, the 90s Knicks. Uh, and in particular, I remember you know, probably the thing that was probably most uh, eye-opening to me was when Anthony Mason died, one of their, um hardest working players and and kind of most passionate emotional players from those years toughest players um passed away really unexpectedly in 2015 due to a heart attack and um fans just really had a hard time with that i think he was only 47 or 48 years old and and um you know people were talking about as if they had lost a member of their own family when he passed away because of how passionate some of these Knicks fans were about him, about those teams that they grew up watching every other day. Um, And, you know, for a lot of people, certainly my age and, you know, a little bit older, this was really the first and only Knicks team they could truly resonate with because at this point it's been almost 50 years since they won a championship. Um, And really it's the only time they've been consistently good since they won. Um, a championship during the 70s. So, you know, it, it, people were really passionate about those teams then. And I think because, in part, because of how awful the Knicks have been since then, uh, there's just a really, really strong nostalgia that people feel. Um, and quite frankly, you know, I, I started working on the book well before this, but when the last dance documentary came out, I think it only solidified how passionate so many people were about those Knicks teams. And just about that era in general, the game is played a much different way now. Um, and the Knicks were, you know, kind of one of a kind to some extent during the 90s in terms of how they played. Maybe really because they realized they had no chance of beating Michael Jordan, um, playing Michael Jordan style. They weren't going to beat him at his game. So yeah. they had to kind of create a game of their own to try to be on level footing. So, um, you know, all those things taken together together. I haven't even mentioned really the personalities of those players that were just so unusual. And so one of a kind Um, people felt as if this team represented what New York was and who New York was and uh, as as a city. And um, I think it's part of the reason that they resonate still to this day uh, really strongly. And uh, all those factors kind of made me more intrigued um, by, you know, in doing the book.
2: It's fascinating, isn't it? Because when you look back on that era, even the lighting of games looks so much different to now. It kind of looks a little bit more like heavyweight boxing uh, in the way the court was lit. And there's something about the Knicks and going up against uh, an irrepressible force in those uh, 90s bulls that you couldn't help but just admire them because they never backed down and they just kept moving forward and the, the, I think there's there's something a little bit lost in sport these days where it's all about championships and it's always about coming out on top and I think back then we used to sort of celebrate uh, players or teams who just never gave up as much as champions
1: Yeah uh, it, it it's funny I think um, to some extent I think they were lovable to New Yorkers uh, in the way that um, you might have a really moody, disagreeable friend <laughs> that you love, but you also can readily understand why other people don't like that person. Yeah. Um, I, I think the Knicks were like that, where uh, yeah. there are a whole lot of people that did not like him, which quite frankly made them a more interesting book subject. I think you yeah. you need to have, it's hard to write about something or someone that only, you know, people, I'll put it this way, you know, I started thinking about second book projects and some of the names and some of the people that I think about, you know, for instance, like a Ken Griffey Jr. So many people love them, but it's also kind of like, if you hated the guy, like why he's he's such a nice guy, he's big and smiley and um, you know, and hits home runs 500 feet. Like who doesn't like someone like that? Who didn't cheat? Like by all, you know, all accounts was someone that played by the book and, you know, had a natural body compared to everybody else, so you know it's great that everybody loves them. But if that's the case and there's really no controversy or no edge there, uh, what, what you know, what are you writing about to kind of talk about why they got turned back or why they never won? Or, or it's just difficult. Nobody really wants to read like the negative stuff about that person if they're so cut and dry and so clean and and stuff like that. The Knicks had a lot of people that did not like them, a lot of fans that did not like them, a lot of teams and coaches that did not like them and felt like they, you know, went against the spirit of the rules or just broke the rules entirely um, with how physically they played that were essentially at times kind of out to hurt other teams, out to hurt other players, Michael Jordan included. Um, So in in light of that, I think it it was – a perfect sort of team to write about because yes, they had a lot of people that viewed it exactly the way you described it. How could you not love them? But there were a lot of people that did not feel that way. And, um, and hopefully that comes across in the book that this was a team that was in some ways a bully and, uh, and, you know, and the league did everything they could eventually to kind of try to usher that out of the NBA.
2: Well, one of the things I love about your writing is it's it's so beautiful to read, but also there's a little bit of a, a definitive flatness when describing a certain person. You never are judging anyone, and it seems like you're just putting forward, they did this, and they did this, and this is who they were, and that's part of what makes the book so fascinating is that... Everyone comes across as incredibly human. Like, everyone is kind of inspiring and flawed. And someone like Pat Riley, who I I kind of followed the Knicks as my East Coast team because I loved Pat when he was the coach for the Lakers. So, I just kind of followed him. And I still love Pat Riley, but, like... He is a fascinating uh, case study. He is a complicated man, and I'm curious. When when you started digging into him, did it add to the mythology of Pat Riley, or did it kind of take away a little bit? How how did you feel about him? Yeah,
1: I mean, I I guess I went in. My my biggest fear with writing about Riley was just, am I going to be able to incorporate or utilize or illustrate something new about him because he's. Right. I mean he just had a birthday the other day the man's 77 years old he's been yeah. a part of the sport now a big part of the sport here in America for the better part of almost 60 years now when we talk yeah. about when he left for college and he was a big name at Kentucky um for you know a, a really historic coach who you know I think is known as much for winning as he is for having been a pretty unabashed racist Uh, quite frankly, um, that played, you know, in a national championship game against um, an all black team. And really, you you know, so kind of the stark contrast between the teams, you know, one team kind of led by someone that was uh, kind of infamously racist, but also playing against a black team and the black team winning and and kind of the, the, the monumental shift that that kind of presented in, in college basketball. So there was that. And, and really from that moment forward, it, you know, at this point, we've got movies and stuff that have been made about that game and about that situation that Pat, someone is portraying him in the movie. And then you talk about his pro career and the fact that he was part of a, a really fiery rivalry um, during the sixties and seventies, the Lakers and the Celtics. Yeah. And then you fast forward another, you know, 10, 15 years or so, and you're talking about him being the coach of those Lakers teams and the same engaged in the same rivalry, essentially. So you you can largely do that and and then go to the Knicks years where he's coaching them against Michael Jordan, the years where he's with the Heat, and then go all the way up through the time where he gets Dwayne Wade and then convinces Chris Bosch and LeBron James to sign on. You can literally tell the history of the NBA through this man. So yeah. there's very I I feel like basketball diehards mostly know his story, which is great um, that he's, you know, so renowned and so widely known. But it's also scary as an author, as a reporter, as someone that the last thing you want to do is only be presenting things that people already know everything about. Um, And if they feel like they already know everything you've got to really kind of come with the goods as far as having information that they don't know or presenting something in a way that maybe they thought they understood and you're actually making them step back and say, actually, no, you didn't know the full story. So Riley was just one of those characters where you you know people, know the outskirts of his story already and you've really got to do a good job to try to explain to them and say, no, no, I don't think you do. Here's the other stuff. um, To try to just make him a full character. And I thought, you know, for me, that was my biggest goal was try to make sure you've got a handful of really good details on every person that shapes that, that explains how this person is the way they are Um, where Riley's fire kind of came from explaining that, you know, he watched how it really devastated his father's life when he had the sport taken away from him and when he couldn't kind of reach the mountaintop in baseball And how Pat, quite frankly, spiraled to some extent when he retired from basketball and kind of found himself on the outside looking in. So the fact that he really needed that and he always needed that edge um, maybe helps to explain why he fought so hard tooth and nail to really hold on to every advantage psychologically, um, you know, just as far as uh, intimidation and stuff like that, the sort of messaging and language that he used. Uh, why he had to be wound that way and wired that way. And hopefully that comes across. But, you know, for me, I know, even though I knew the outskirts of his story, I didn't know any of that stuff. And um, I'd read enough books about Pat and watched enough, um, you know, in terms of documentaries and stuff on Pat to realize that, okay, some of this stuff has been out there, but it's never been out there in this collection of information with all the other stuff that I can add to it. And um, so I was, you know, that was the feedback I got from some people, even folks that I borrowed information from in the book and cited them in the book. They were like, wow, you know, like I knew Riley had this going on or that Riley was like this, but I had no idea about this, this and this, or I had no idea that he handled this this way, or I had no idea that his decision making was impacted by this. And that's what you strive for as an author, because you're never gonna, unless you're writing about someone who's just burst onto the scene or someone that somehow has kind of um, stayed beneath the radar for, you know, at this point, Pat just turned 77, unless someone stayed under the radar for 60 years, you're, you're not going to be writing about someone that doesn't have anything out there about them, especially someone of his stature. So you're just trying to get enough details to kind of spin the, the story forward and kind of illuminate how they were the way they were. And um, so I, that was the approach that I took with Riley and hopefully it did that.
2: Well, there's a bit of ironic timing in talking to you about this because I literally just watched the latest episode of Winning Time and he's just turned (laughs) up as Adrian Brody. (laughs) And it was uh, kind of fascinating having read the book to see, you know, and that, that show, while I'm enjoying it, it feels like, you know... You, you coked out best friend who experienced it who's telling you the story where you're going. Are you completely correct about all of this? But yeah. there, there was some of the aspects of the book in there, you know, with the, with the father that was kind of touched on. So, it was like, when I was watching, I was like, has Chris really done a lot of heavy lifting for me here that I'm appreciating this a little bit more? But uh, So, I guess he's about to get a whole lot of uh, new eyes on him through the prism of this very um, interesting TV show.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, I did not catch this latest one yet. I've, I watched the first two and I'm, I'm friends with the the person who wrote Showtime, which winning time is based off. Of. Yeah. And uh, and so, I mean, he's been upfront about saying, you know, certain things are dramatized for that effect. I think there's even the disclaimer before the show starts every week <laughs> yeah. that, that says that. And, you know, I think that the person that everybody's kind of most curious about and I've noticed it. Um, because I've still had to be, I won't say obsessive, but I've still paid attention to how my own book is selling and and you know, where it's ranked and different things like that. And looking at the other books that are up there with it, the Showtime book has has kind of rebounded and done really well the last few weeks. I think as people grow more curious about those eighties Lakers teams, but also the autobiography that Jerry West did right. um is is selling a lot better than usual because it, you know, that book came out in 2010 2011 something like that it's been out for a while um but I think people are really curious about him because they're like was he actually this miserable um (laughs) and the answer I think is that he he did have a lot going on he he was kind of infamous you know in terms of just how uh miserable he was but I a lot of people have kind of come out of the woodworks. A lot of people from those Lakers teams have come out and said, like, he was never, never, never this over the top or this rude or this awful to people. He was, you know, we didn't have to do this, this, and this with him um, to get him to respond. He was, you know, so I, I, clearly there's been some stuff added for dramatic effect. And I think it's probably a pretty good telltale sign that books are generally a little bit more, on the nose. Uh, you, you hope that there's a lot of reporting that goes into them, but particularly when Jeff has done four or 500 interviews, and in my case when I've done more than 200 for my book, uh, the books are generally a little bit more true to form, and I think that that's true with his as well.
2: Yeah, it's funny because it's the Australian actor Jason Clarke uh, playing Jerry West, who I'm a big fan of, but I'm still looking and going, uh, this isn't quite yeah. jibing 100% with everything that I've read before, Yeah, but uh, I thought you uh, might appreciate this I'm, I'm kind of reluctant to talk about uh, some of the uh, definite uh, parts of the story because uh, a friend of mine who is not necessarily an NBA fan but really enjoyed uh, the Michael Jordan docco uh, was curious about if there was anything else out there and I uh, lent them uh, my copy of your book and uh, thank you for her it was, she said it was like um, like it was like uh, the experience of seeing the movie Moneyball where uh, because here i as an example i didn't know that story so when i went and saw it at the cinema you in your head you have this is how sport movies work and then you get to the end and go oh <laughs> i have not experienced what i was expecting and she had that experience with this book that's uh, a huge
1: compliment by the way I, I really appreciate that please tell her when you get a chance that i said thank you because um that first of all Moneyball is a fantastic book and I think, you know, I would hope that Michael Lewis felt like it was a a well done movie, Um, but it just it it opens people's eyes to the way the business works and the way that the best people in the industry think about um, team building and different things like that. And it's I think my fear with writing this book in some ways is just that. It's even more interesting behind the scenes than maybe what you can really get across in words, yeah, and so then you see the movie and people get to watch it that way and then they understand it, so the fact that she felt that way, reading it is is a huge compliment, thank you oh
2: yeah, and it's it's great because there's uh part of what gets these characters these athletes and 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 pat himself to the summit is their they doggedness, they've got a level of stoicism, they've got uh, single-mindedness. But then there's also a double-edged sword with that as well, isn't there? Where you're kind of looking and you're thinking, how much of that uh, held you back? Like, did you leave a championship, uh, you know, uh, just slightly out of reach because you were uncompromising? And then uh, someone who's really fascinating is uh, Patrick Ewing, who I kind of had the experience of, you know, reading about him when he first came into the league and then finally getting to watch him play. And he was this incredible star. But uh, I, I wonder, do, do you feel like people have uh, forgotten how important Patrick Ewing was in modern day NBA? Because what they see is, you know, Scottie Pippen dunking on him or stuff like that. And they forget, you know, that was just one moment in a, in a pretty impressive career.
1: Uh to some extent, yeah. I mean, I think um it's I'll put it this way. The the question I've been getting a lot over the last two months since the book came out, um, is for instance, you know, the Knicks obviously have been terrible. You know, I, I put right there in the prologue that they've lost more teams and, you know, won fewer playoff series than any team in the NBA yeah. since that period where Jeff Van Gundy resigned and the basically the regime changed over at that point. Um And people have used that as an opportunity to kind of ask me like, man, Dolan really must be that bad. Right. You know, the, the person that owns the Knicks, it's just a really clear indication of how horrible an owner he is, which I I tend to agree that he's not, you know, I don't think he's a good steward of, of the team, you know, and I I think you can be willing to spend money and still be a really poor manager and poor, you know, poor at making decisions about who you want to run the team and why Um, poor at handling PR and, and things that might just impact the well-being of the fan base or players oh, yeah. or what have you. Um, but I still push back a little bit, not because I think Dolan is some wonderful owner or wonderful person uh, because I don't necessarily think that, but I think that my my bigger thought process with that is that I think Dolan is one common denominator, certainly in terms of when the team started to really perform poorly And what had recently changed was that Dolan came into full ownership. But I think the other thing that people downplay or maybe just forget about or don't give enough credence to is the fact that the Knicks were kept afloat by, I would say, a top six, seven at worst superstar for the better part of 15 years. And all of a sudden, when that's not there anymore, um, that things, you know, things that were kept afloat before start to sink. Um, unless you replace that figure. And and obviously you can win in other ways. Um, You know, we saw the Pistons win a championship a few years after Patrick left um, in Detroit uh, with a team that really didn't have any, you know, surefire hall of fame players on, I think to this day, only one of those guys has been inducted and it was just recently Ben Wallace. But it's harder to kind of sustain success when it's team based success, as opposed to, based on just one player lifting his team every year. Uh, yeah. Even with the Spurs, you know, they had uh, Tim Duncan for most of that time. Now, granted, they got other people along the way. Tony Parker and Manu Ginobili. Kawhi Leonard developed into a superstar himself. But it's it's much easier to maintain year-in, year-out dominance. Um, just, I, I, I guess, uh, competence when you've got one guy like Michael Jordan or um, Patrick Ewing, who obviously was a lesser you know star, but still a star. And there's no question yeah. about that during those years. So I think that uh, he probably was a little bit underappreciated because it's hard to fully appreciate someone um, when they're there every year, year in, year out. He was rarely ever injured to the point where he wasn't able to play. He played through just about everything, which probably yeah. shortened his career a little bit too, but Yeah, I think that there was some underappreciation of that, and I think, um, you know, when he forced a trade and said he wanted out uh, in 2000, I think that that was part of the reason why was that he, uh, he, you know, the the advent really or kind of the proliferation of talk radio um, happened in the late 90s, and so all of a sudden, you know, now what we view as Twitter and social media, yeah, um, the closest thing we had to that during that era was just now coming into existence and players were hearing more directly the criticisms of their game or of their attitudes. And um I think Ewing was the guy that, that, you know, wore a lot of that on his shoulder uh, or maybe not on his shoulder, but like it crept inside of him, I think, to where it bothered him and he just wouldn't voice it. Or when he did voice it, it would be after he'd heard so much of it where it just bubbled up and he would react harshly and say that I don't care what fans think or, who cares about the fans and then fans would get even more angry and quite frankly i'm watching it's not the same exact thing but i'm watching something similar happen now with uh you know one of the knicks best players and julius randall right. where the fan base certainly is frustrated with him i think randall has fed into some of it and kind of reacted to some of it poorly yeah uh, even his wife has, has kind of gotten into it with knicks fans on Twitter, and it, it I'm sure it is very difficult to play in front of a market like that, um, even when you've done it for a long time. And I, I say all that to say that I think Ewing um, was appreciated, but I think because some of the other stars from that team, who were nowhere near as talented as he was, uh, but showed more on-court emotion and I think expressed more of an of, uh, animated pride where they were shouting and screaming and, you know, that they really lived and died on the court. John Starks, Anthony Mason, Charles Oakley. There was almost more of an appreciation for those guys, like the everyman, than there was for Ewing. And I think um, it probably did cost Ewing a little bit, but I do think that after he left and fans realized, wow, like he really left because he was so upset and frustrated here. I think there was a realization that, Life was pretty good with Patrick Ewing. He didn't win a yeah. championship, but most teams didn't during those 90s years. Um, and the reception that he gets now from New Yorkers is, is overwhelmingly positive. Um, and I think you can tell that he wishes he'd never left. The fans wish he'd never left. And I think the fans realize now, too, that, um, that you're not guaranteed anything. And uh, there's been no clear indication of that other than him leaving and, and things going down the tube as quickly as they did for as yeah. long as they have.
2: Yeah, look, I was uh, I was desperately barracking for those uh, Knicks teams because, uh, A, because of Pat Riley, but also like I was, you know, I had my flag firmly planted in the Magic Johnson is better than Michael Jordan uh, <laughs> argument. And the last thing I needed was a three-peat and then a double three-peat. It's like, damn it. <laughs> I thought I was on top of this. So I was like, come on, guys, yeah. you can do this. Uh, you know, when, when you were researching it, uh, was there any player that, kind of stole your heart a little bit once you kind of dug into them a little bit more?
1: No. um, You know, I think it, it, it helped that, uh, you know, I, I I grew up, I actually grew up in Chicago. I live in Chicago now, but again, I was such a young person that um, while I was certainly a Bulls fan, it wasn't like a diehard loyalty. I didn't really have enough time to watch them um, or understand what I was watching relative to everybody else. I knew they were great, but we had parades here every year when they won championships. I just kind of assumed every city got that because it was, for us, it was almost like a a back-to-school parade or something like that, (laughs) you know, because we had them every year at the same time of year, so it just kind of felt like another holiday was built in. Um, But I, I had no knowledge of the fact that they were like rivals of the Knicks, why they would have been rivals of the Knicks or that we weren't supposed to like them as Bulls fans. So I didn't grow up with any of that passion. You know, a lot of people that are my age or a little bit older, like diehard John Starks fans because they grew up as New Yorkers and he was just so passionate and fun and scrappy. And like, so I didn't go on with any of that. So I didn't really have a soft spot built in for anyone. What I will say is that um in reporting it out, I did, I did realize very quickly. I was like, okay, I, I so the guys on the cover, um, John Starks, Patrick Ewing, Pat Riley, Charles Oakley, Anthony Mason. I knew I was going to have chapters about all those guys. Yeah. Um, I figured that those would more or less be the only guys I would write full chapters on. Um, the one I was not expecting to do a full chapter on was, was Charles Smith. Oh yeah. Um, just because, you know, for me, I just assumed that like he was that one moment and that one moment only where, you know, he gets rejected and, you know, the ball taken out of his hands basically four times in a four or five second span, which, you know, that, that moment lives in infamy for Knicks fans, but in understanding that moment and how singularly painful that is and was for Knicks fans, I felt like you couldn't leave it just at that. You kind of had to tell his whole story, his whole origin story about how he got there. And I think, you know, digging further into Pat Riley and how that dynamic worked with him and the way he coached his players and what he expected of his players, the more I realized, um, this is a really good opportunity to kind of tell part of Pat's story and kind of how hard charging he was as a coach. You can tell that story through Charles Smith. And so when I got yeah. certain details, I was like, I've got to do a full chapter on Charles. And part of me wanted to once I got more details because I just realized you have a lot of fans that don't to this day kind of badmouth the guy, don't like the guy, um, give the guy a hard time on the street when they see him. Um, because of that one moment, and I think that anytime you've got a person or a player that is kind of shaped by one moment, particularly an on-court moment where all these guys are out there doing the best they can, it, it wasn't—you know—it wasn't as if he was trying to to miss or not score there. Obviously, it's one of the the biggest failures and disappointments of his life, and anytime that happens in front of millions of people. Um, to where people only remember you you mentioned a name and people have an immediate reaction to you mentioning the name that's kind of the the that's the sort of name he carries in New York so how could you not do a longer chapter on him and I felt like in explaining that play and what led up to it and also just how much Pat Riley really didn't see Charles as a fit or as a player that really fit his style um, or as a guy that really, Um, accentuated the rest of the group very well. I felt like that had to be a bigger part of the book than what I went in thinking. So, um, you know, did I develop a soft spot? Not necessarily, but I did feel a little bit bad for him and a little bit more bad for him than I expected to when I first started the reporting process, just because when people started telling me that he really still gets it and hears it from fans. And, you know, and I mentioned in the epilogue of the book that um, he kind of went off on a reporter for, I mean, and this was kind of even hard to explain in the book, but a reporter was doing a book about a diehard Knicks fan that sat courtside for 20, 30 years, um, who developed a friendship with the reporter, with players, with coaches from that Knicks staff, because she sat courtside for so long, like this sweet older lady and Um, The older lady had a huge soft spot for Charles Smith, um, was devastated for Charles when, you know, when the game five happened in 93. And because of that, always, always, always made sure to try to guard Charles's feelings when people were going to come around to make sure that nobody would say anything disrespectful to him or anything else. And the reporter brought that up with Charles when the reporter was doing a book on this woman who had died. And the book was about her. It was not about Charles. It was not really about that moment or anything, but the reporter Harvey Ayrton, who's written, uh, you know, a brilliant book of his own called when the garden was eaten um, on the seventies, Knicks, he mentioned it to Charles and Charles just kind of went, um, you know, he just was extremely angry and started yelling basically yeah. about, you know, he he ended the interview and said, you can't use the stuff that I gave you earlier in the interview and blah, 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 blah. And, It, you know sometimes you get stuff like that where you cannot even discuss a topic with someone or even bring it up without someone going completely uh, you know just kind of losing it and um, that was what happened in that case and I think it tells you how sensitive he still is to that and um, you know I would have given anything to have spoken to him at length about some of that because it it really is kind of like a PTSD yeah um, to some extent not trying to make light of that at all but um that for him it puts him in such an ugly place that he can't the mention of the sheer mention of it just puts him in a really really horrible place uh, a really angry place so I I did you know whether it was a soft spot but I definitely wanted to get that across like I I definitely wanted to get across that he's human and he still he still lives with this you know as much as it kills Knicks fans it, it really took something out of him too and
2: uh don't think for a minute that it didn't yeah, there's um that was one of my favourite chapters, actually. And uh, what was uh, really interesting is it, it kind of reminded me that regardless of what your talent and your skill sets are, you need to be uh, a bit lucky in the era that you play as well, don't you? And it's, he feels like someone who, if he, like he would thrive in the way the game's played today. And wow. it's just such a, you, you just need that little bit of luck, don't you, to be able to come along at the right time to maximize everything
1: yeah i mean there's a part of me in rereading it and just kind of going back through the notes for the book and stuff like that i feel like he could have been more of a factor then too i mean certainly now i mean now the game is kind of built around players like him that have his build that are as tall as he is that can score the way he could or dribble or pass the way he could um but again, you know, that was why I felt like, you know, maybe I wouldn't have focused on him for a whole chapter had it not been for really the way that Riley made life difficult for him. But I think the fact that, you know, like you were saying before, and I appreciate you recognizing it or reviewing it that way in terms of me really not making value judgments about um, the players, the coaches, mm. their styles. Certainly, you know, I, to some extent can call balls and strikes here and there about if someone, um, you know, makes a comment that is going too far or something like that. But I'm more or less let that stuff speak for itself. That same as that same thing is true of Riley, Yeah. but I've, I do kind of put Riley's comments out there and structure them in a way that make it, I think, very feasible to say, man, he really pushed his players far or too far in some cases. And I think with Charles, I mean, certainly from a physical standpoint, and you know, I lay that out with Doc Rivers in his own words, saying that he joined the Knicks and Magic Johnson and James Worthy immediately told him, Your career's done. You know, yeah. basically like by the time you're done playing for the Knicks, there won't be anything left in you physically. Uh, so the players say that themselves, but certainly as it relates to Charles, that Riley wanted Charles so badly to be like the rest of the other players with the toughness and and the sort of tenacity they played with even though that wasn't who Charles was. And I think Riley tried so hard to mold Charles into that when really every team, certainly when you're playing against a team like the bulls, you could probably use some finesse players that yep. really are more offense focused than defense that can make jumpers out to 17, 19 feet um, that can get up and down the court, you know, without having to grab a knee or an arm or something like that, because they're in so much pain. Um And Riley, you know, Riley played Charles Smith as a small forward instead of using him off the bench as maybe a power forward or a center, which were more close to his natural positions. Um, They made Charles Smith drop 15, 20 pounds so that he could downsize and play smaller and guard someone like Scottie Pippen, who is not an easy guard, not an easy guy to defend. Um, Certainly at 6'10", 6'11", or however Charles Smith was, however tall he was. so. I mean, they were, by definition, kind of making it more difficult for him. Um, easily could have started somebody like Anthony Mason yeah. and brought him into the starting lineup and then let Charles come off the bench and play alongside Herb Williams or whoever else instead of playing him next to Charles Oakley and Patrick Ewing when those guys clearly need to be your power forward and center. So um, nothing about the process was really made easier for Charles. Um, you know, and, and that's not to say that Charles would have been some all-star, for the Knicks necessarily, but I feel like they could have potentially gotten more out of him. Had Riley been more open to using him differently or just been more open to Charles being a fundamentally different player than what the Knicks had on their roster and not needing every single guy on the team to be a robot or built the same way. And, uh, you know, so I, I think, you know, in some ways might've been a failing of Riley's.
2: Yeah, imagine uh instead of having him, you know, going up against uh Grant and Pippen instead he's, you know, getting to cook against Stacey King and Will Perdue and then suddenly right. you know, suddenly uh the the Knicks might be in the stratosphere of, you know, scoring <laughs> in triple digits, you know. So all easy in hindsight, but it's uh it's amazing. Uh I, I don't want to get too much into uh once again specifics of players. Uh, <laughs> I I will just say the Xavier McDaniel story about four pages in was one of those moments where you read something and you put down a book and you think, I'm just going to sit here and ponder this for a moment about how much the world has changed and then I picked it up and started reading again. Were there there any uh, other stories that kind of cropped up that you went, "Uh, you know what, it's not really fitting the narrative, I'm going to leave, like it's a good story but it doesn't really fit with uh, where the book's going? Uh, sure.
1: There were there were a lot. I mean, I have a whole document. I still have it um, in terms of like, I think that the document title is like cutting room floor stories or cutting room floor anecdotes um, for the book. And there were dozens, you know, uh, some that are small and not necessarily that important. Others that are interesting, but, you know, I couldn't find a reason to really include them uh, because I tried to be very tight with the book as far as... Um, You know, I've I've got my bookshelf here and I've got a a number of books, a number of sports books that are well over 400 pages long. I didn't really feel like this book needed to be that long. Um, One, you're writing about eight seasons, but it's also eight seasons about a team that didn't win a championship. They did get very close, but you know, I've read enough books at this point to kind of at least have the opinion that you don't want to, make the team out to be more vital or more important to an era than they were. I feel like right. they were very central to the nineties because they, you know, they were right in the thick of things every year. They almost beat Michael Jordan. You know, they were intertwined with Michael a lot. Yeah. Um, the, the craziness with Pat Riley and leaving for Miami and all that stuff, you know, the OJ chase, the Pacers rivalry. <laughs> yeah. The players were fascinating. The league really, really, Wanted to do away with the way the Knicks played the game and that, you know, made them as influential in the 90s as basically anybody. But the baseline level, you know, at, at a base level, they still never won. Whereas, you know, I've got a, a book on my shelf called Three Ring Circus about the Kobe, Shaq, Phil era Lakers. Yeah. that won three championships um, in what, in a four year span, and a five year span, yeah. whatever it was. Yeah. So because of that, you know, like that book is like 450 pages. It deserves to be because this is a team that, you know, had more star power than the Knicks did, Um, you know, had two or three extremely polarizing personalities um, that are, you know, all Hall of Fame level guys. The Knicks didn't have that. And uh, so I didn't want to stretch it farther than it needed to be. I wanted you to be able to turn from one page to the next and not feel like there was a lot of fat left over where. I'm just saying stuff just to say it, just to hit a, a word limit or a page limit. So I, I kept it tight. So it it left for a lot of cutting room stuff where if it didn't really fit where I was trying to go with it or if it was an interesting detail but didn't really add anything, I didn't, I didn't want there to be a lot of empty calories. So I had, um, for instance, like I had a player who told me that all the other players on the team, not all the other players, but a lot of the other players on the team, like when they would take road trips, would give this player like their their leftover condoms uh, on trips so that their wives and their significant others would not know that you know that they'd been unfaithful during a trip which is like wow that's kind of you know it sounds explosive and maybe to some extent it is but at the same time it's like well you also know the, the lifestyle like a lot of players are probably not going to be faithful I get into some of that in the book with a couple guys but it's not it's not everything feels kind of ground shaking um you know earth shattering when you hear it but then it's like well the context of it if you don't have really good details or really useful details okay the team was you know enjoyed themselves in a way that maybe was not the most upstanding we know we can more or less assume that um so i didn't you know i had stuff like that um i had a detail in the book where i do mention that um greg anthony left uh a loaded gun in the weight room during um after our practice so i do include that in the book but then i didn't include that um pat riley so the an assistant coach picked the gun up and then basically wanted almost like turned it into a lost and found he gave it to pat riley but when he gave it to riley riley was sitting in a pitch black room watching film on a projector in his office um and so when this assistant coach came up to present riley the gun He just walked into Riley's office and stood there at the door in the dark and he's standing there with a loaded gun and Pat Riley doesn't know why he's standing there with the gun. So he's kind of freaked out. So I didn't include that detail just because I couldn't, I knew I wanted to use the one part of it about Greg Anthony having been the one to leave it because there was a purpose for why I wanted to mention Greg maybe being irresponsible or forgetful about something like that with a loaded gun. But I didn't have a a clear place to really put the other half of the anecdote about, you know, Riley being fearful of the fact that maybe his assistant coach was going to shoot him or something like that. So there's that. (laughs) And I think maybe, you know, the the detail that I wish I'd had most or, you know, been able to nail down was, uh, and I've said this in a couple other places, there was, um, I have one part of the book where I try to make a point about how competitive and difficult it was to get Knicks tickets because of how great they were, how much New Yorkers loved them and wanted to see them. And, you know, even when the Knicks tickets were the most expensive ones on the market that the Knicks were selling out and 15,000 person season ticket waiting lists and stuff like that. But I had somebody who told me a, a really great anecdote about.
0: Here's a cool fact.
1: Richard Nixon, uh the former American president and um so they they told me that Nixon wanted to bring his grandson to a game, he did. Um and upon bringing him to the game, the Knicks, you know, approached the president and asked um you know, someone a staffer from the Knicks said, "We'd really love for you to come to the locker room and maybe sign some autographs for us, but also to just come meet the players and um You know, speak to the players for a few moments after the game. They would really love to meet you. Um, Which is funny to me, just because I, you know, I think about presidents and I don't don't know. There are probably certain presidents I really wouldn't be that amped to see. (laughs) Richard Nixon would probably be one of them, but that's me, you know, so whatever. But they were really, really pressing for Richard Nixon to come meet the players after the game. This was 1993. So he ended up dying the year after. Um, But Nixon comes. To the locker room. It had been in the midst of a really long winning streak, based on what the person who I interviewed told me, um, where the Knicks had won 20 games in a row or something at home. Um, But they ended up losing that day. Um, And so the tenor of the locker room is a lot different when Nixon comes in because, you know, they've been winning everything and all of a sudden they lose. So Nixon comes in the locker room like he's been asked to. He gets there and he sees Patrick Ewing, uh, who always would kind of famously sit uh with his ankles in a bucket of ice and wear these big ice packs on his knees you know this long seven foot frame so he stands up to try to uh show respect to richard nixon as he walks in and he introduces himself but he then apologizes to the president for the team having played poorly the team having lost uh with him in attendance and um richard nixon reaches up and grabs patrick by the shoulder to say you know that he appreciates the sentiment but he says well you know in the future patrick that's okay um you know if you can't beat him just cheat in the future and (laughs) um you know i i'm told this story and i'm just like floored because on the one hand it's a really humorous anecdote um but also i'm you know in my mind i'm i'm you know, first time author that is eager to make sales for this book. So I'm, you know, as I'm doing every interview, every time someone says something that really strikes me as gold, I'm kind of filing that away mentally saying, okay, I know exactly how we'll be able to use this or spend this or pitch this to people that have an interest in the book or, you know, for an excerpt or whatever it is. And immediately thinking like, Oh, this Nixon thing is going to get so much attention from history buffs and political science buffs and what have you because he more or less is making a self-deprecating joke yeah. about having cheated to try to stay in office and Watergate and everything. So I'm like floored, um, but, you know, frustratingly, I guess for me, and the book has done well enough, so it's fine. But like um, within about five to 10 minutes of ending that phone call with the person that told me that, I was able to debunk that it, it hadn't. Actually happened. You know, oh right! Debunked that it, it actually happened. Uh, because I looked up the records of kind of when Richard Nixon went to a game. There was only one game he went to. It, it got some publicity. Um, and the first thing I saw about that game was that the Knicks had won the game by about twenty points at home. So oh, right. there would have been no reason for Richard Nixon to make a comment about if you can't beat him, cheat. because they won so i then had to go back to the person it was a pretty high-ranking person that gave me the detail and i asked him are you sure it happened that way or what are you basing it off of what you know like did you see it happen he's like i could have sworn you know pat had written a book and he mentioned it in the book i'm like you know so it wasn't like a first hand knowledge i saw this happen sort of thing which as soon as i heard that's like okay it didn't happen um which made me a little bit sad because that to me even if I couldn't immediately think of a way to incorporate it um, you know I, I, I write at the end of the book or maybe at the beginning I mean uh, that the Knicks were like this Forrest Gump style team where they had all these funny weird bizarre run-ins and you know uh, tangles entanglements with history whether it was Jordan or Spike Lee and Reggie Miller yeah and you know the craziness with the heat and Pat Riley um, and certainly if you've got a detail involving Richard Nixon, who I think I'm trying to remember whether Nixon I guess Nixon wasn't in Forrest Gump, but the Watergate stuff is, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Um th- th- that that uh, that portion of it is kind of devoted to the Watergate scandal. But anyway, I mentioned all that to say that like that would clearly be like one of those odd run. Oh, the OJ Chase is the other odd run-in yeah. those 90s Knicks had. But then if you'd had an instance like a Nixon run-in where he's in the locker room and he makes a comment like that. I would have moved heaven and earth within the book to make something like that fit um, and make use of that again if only because that would have just been such a weird pop culture reference from the 70s 80s and something that still fascinates people to this day Um, as a matter of fact a couple weeks after my book came out there was one um, an oral history that was written on Watergate um, that went bestseller right after mine did so uh, people here are still fascinated by that so I wish that hadn't been on the cutting room floor, yeah. um, but you can't include something that didn't actually happen or
2: wasn't actually true. So, well, uh, you I know did not that make the book. that speaks to your integrity, because <laughs> I think there would have been other people that would have squeezed it in. <laughs> hey, uh, I could talk to you for ages, uh, but I'll just I'll just hit you with a couple of quick questions to let you go. Um, sure. Jeff Van Gundy is he is still like. Adorable, like uh, the I've loved <laughs> Jeff for such a long time, and uh, I, I felt in a way he was kind of the heart of your book. Uh, did you uh, was he as uh, as much fun as he appears to be when you were interviewing him? He he was. I mean, he's
1: I. So I've known Jeff for a while, not on a super personal level. We've met maybe once, uh, um, but I. It's interesting. He he and I had spoken several times. Before I even did the book project, I you know I'd interviewed him a number of times uh, for The Wall Street Journal when I used to cover the Knicks there just to get his perspective on things and occasionally quote him in pieces and always been good to me, always been happy to talk when he could make the time. Um, what was interesting is that I, I introduced myself to him in person before doing the book so that he would know who I was and basically a heads up that I'm gonna be contacting you for the book once I get to a point where I'm ready to interview, you know, I, I was trying not to approach any of the major figures for the book until I'd done a lot of research and a lot of reporting and spoken to a lot of other people to get the best information I could to be able to ask better questions. Um, like, for instance, that Jeff was, you know, basically more or less responsible for babysitting a, a secretary's little kid at, at work, yeah. you know, before he became, you know, a, a high level assistant. And before he became the head coach, you know, that Jeff had been essentially kicked out of his office to make room for a marketing staffer, like little things like that, um, that just humanize guys a little bit more and show you kind of like a, what, you know, kind of like a, how life was going for this person before he got his big break sort of thing. Um, so all that stuff was useful in terms of why it was helpful to wait to interview him until I had all those other details, but I will say, and I've said this in another place or two as well. Um, I felt like I was pretty close to not getting him for the book at one point because, um, you know, now it's just kind of out there and everybody has seen it and heard it and kind of made fodder with it with uh, with regards to Charles Oakley's book and just how um, adamant he's been about kind of skewering Patrick Ewing um, right. and his time and his tenure with the Knicks and how he wasn't a good leader and this and that. Um, so some of that had started kind of in earnest. Um really as I was starting to write my book, where he was really um attacking Patrick in the media for a lack of leadership and all sorts of other stuff, which again, and then I said this in the epilogue, I think it's mostly because um Charles was frustrated that Patrick never publicly, vocally backed Charles in the midst of what was happening with him and James Dolan and being thrown out of the garden and, you know, the embarrassment that stemmed from that and him wanting his former teammates to have his back vocally. And Patrick didn't do that. I think not that he had any obligation to, but I think Patrick probably wanting to get a job, you know, whether it was with the Knicks or anybody else, of course, Patrick didn't speak up. Uh, it wasn't really his battle to fight in his mind, but Oakley was frustrated by that. But anyway, I sell that to say this, um, Oakley was saying so much about Patrick in the media that uh, at a certain point when I reached out to Jeff, Jeff Van Gundy responded by saying, you know, I know I said I would talk to you and I, to some extent, I trust you, but I don't think I want to talk anymore. And when I asked him why he cited what Charles had been saying in the media and he wondered and worried whether I might just kind of be, piling on and just trying to collect as much dirt on everybody as I could to make it kind of a he said she said sort of thing with the book and just make the book like you know that people are going to talk mess about each other and that it wasn't going to be like a well-reported piece of history Um, so he, he he got cold feet and I did my very best to try to say Jeff like I've interviewed you plenty of times I don't think you've ever seen me take something out of context that you've told me Or, you know, also like I came up with the Wall Street Journal, like I can't promise you that I won't use something if it's to my advantage to use it. But I'm not just out to sling mud, quite frankly, as it relates to Oakley. I have no interest in relitigating stuff through the prism of like 2020 and 2021, 2022. And what Oakley is now saying about that stuff as it relates to the 1990s if these weren't things that he was willing to say back then, if it yeah. seems like it's sour grapes or that it's frustration that he has with Patrick over something that happened a couple of years ago, I'm not about to use that um, as a reason to like relitigate something that clearly seems like it's an after the fact sort of criticism. Like I'm not, my book's not going to do that. I just want to tell the story through the eyes of the people that lived it. And I'm telling you, I, I can't obligate you to, you know, I can't make you, participate you know in the book um but i know the book will be better for it if you're if you're willing to and i can promise you i'll do i'm bending over backwards to try to be fair here to everybody to pat who obviously had plenty that he could be criticized for and that he still is criticized for with jeff with the management yeah with jeff as it related to management and someone essentially getting fired because of it Um, And asking Jeff some tough questions about that, but also giving people every opportunity, at least a chance to respond. And uh, that's fairness. And so I I, I told Jeff all that. It was probably a five, 10 minute spiel um, when he had said he admitted that he had cold feet and he said, "Okay, you know, like we'll we'll talk. I don't know how much I want to talk or how deep I want to get into it, but um, give me a call on this day and we'll we'll talk. And uh, so I think that day had like an hour. We probably talked three or four other times. And it was really useful. And, um, yeah. you know, Jeff is someone that um, he, he's a little bit of a curmudgeon. Like he's he's critical of everything in some way, like even if he really loves something. And I mentioned this in the book, he, like he's kind of like a miserable person. Not in, like, I don't mean that in like a horrible way. I just mean like he, he has a hard time enjoying a lot of things. Yeah. Um, and so even if something is really well done. Um, it, it it takes him a long time to kind of warm all the way up to saying that like he really likes it. Um, he and I haven't talked about the book directly. I did text him to ask him if uh, if I could send him a copy, and he was like, "I've already got one. Thank you." Um, so he read it as soon as it came out. Yeah, but I heard him do a radio appearance with a big name radio host in New York uh, named Michael K, who used to be in um, a sideline reporter for for the Knicks uh, during those. Uh, 90s years for their, their network. And he could not have been, in my opinion, more glowing in terms of the way he spoke about the book, where I think he he called the book, he said he thought it perfectly captured the tenor and tone of what those teams were, how they behaved, how they operated with each other, and how they were v- viewed around the league and how people loved them and hated them. And he said that he thought the book was exceptionally fair. and And because I know Jeff, and he speaks with a really critical, but also measured tone as far as the way he talks about the media and the media overhyping certain things and the media being unfair about certain things that actually might've been one of the biggest compliments I've gotten at all yeah. about the book, just because I know he, he very rarely lavishes praise on things. But if, if someone that was that central to all of it and, and was there the whole time, either as an assistant or as the head coach, um if he felt like it was fair and and he's generally very critical of the media um there's two ways to read that either that it was so over the top and you know just a a big hug and kiss to the organization which i felt like i was you know i was critical at times and laying out the true facts and the you know the things they did wrong and the things they overdid or the things that hurt them um you know so i don't think it was just that it was such a a a, a warm wet kiss for you know for the people of that Decade, I think it was that he just felt like it was really fair. Yeah, um, so he did read it. He was really helpful for it, and uh, I could not be more appreciative that he participated because I think it made the book better.
2: Oh yeah, he was fantastic. All of his parts were so great. Look, um, I I, I, the-
1: I gave you a really long answer for that. I know you were saying you want to keep these short. You can. Oh got, no, if, if you've got time, I've got a little bit more time to keep. Going. Oh yeah, great.
2: No, no, don't apologize. That's fantastic. It was, uh, you know. Uh, <clears throat> It's funny because uh, you know my first kind of image of Jeff when uh, when I was a kid was watching you know you think about him latched to Alonso Morning's leg and and crazy things like that. Uh, right. But as a commentator, I enjoy him so much. And then once again, you know the world of podcasts is it, it's so helpful hearing him speak so eloquently and and then. Uh, once again, when I was watching Winning Time and knowing we were going to be chatting this morning, I was like, ah, oh, I wonder if, you know, if this series is successful enough, could there be in the future, you know, uh, winning time, blood in the garden season, and then who would who would be these players? I was thinking, oh, it's a shame Larry David's too old. Like he would have been perfect to kind of play a young. You'd have to dye him. his
1: hair a little bit. Yeah,
2: <laughs> dye it a little bit. Yeah, make but, him a little uh, bit shorter and dye his hair. Yeah, <laughs> the uh, I've always been, um, uh, you know, because for a long time uh, to to get NBA information out here when I was younger was so hard. Uh, I've been fascinated by what I kind of refer to as the Shadow Dynasties, and they're the, the teams that were good for a long time that didn't quite get there. Uh, mm-hmm. Lenny Wilkins, Cleveland Cavaliers, uh, Rick Adelman had a had a, a brilliant but frustrating run with the uh, Trailblazers and with the Sacramento Kings. Uh, if you were to write a, about a team like that, is there any uh, that you look back on that kind of fascinates you?
1: Yeah, Um well, I'm, I, I will say that I've got, I can't quite get into it. I think we, as of like later this week or maybe next week, we might be able to at least admit what I'm working on or kind of announce it, but I can't do it just yet, but I've, I, I am going to do a second book. I'm going to start it very soon. I've got a bunch of research material on my table for it, but I gave long, hard thought to a number of teams, uh, players, people, uh, Riley was one of them, you know, just as far as maybe doing a biography on him because of how much of the story of basketball you can kind of tell just through him. Um, but then also you look at somebody like, uh, you know, or you, you mentioned the Kings. That was a team that I thought about. I, I think a lot of people actually I have a friend that is kind of going through this now where um, we joked about it because in that person's case, I feel like they... Their second book is going to be a lot like the first one as far as the sort of figure they chose, um, similarities in kind of the backstory, um, similarities in where they come from. And for me, I think I'd say all that to say this, I think a lot of times authors oftentimes will chase a similar subject matter to what the first one was about. Even down to the arc of the story being similar, so right. I think I hit on something here. Where you know, obviously, we've been very happy with the sales. The book made the bestseller list here in the states in the New York Times, yeah, uh, twice for you know, which is hard to do as a first-time author. It's very hard to do f- with a sports book, um, and it's very unusual to see it about a team that's not a dynasty. Yeah. Um, so we we kind of struck relative gold with that, not not necessarily something that like made me rich or anything, but like found success with that. Um and because of that, you know, naturally as you're trying to think of second ideas, you're like, okay, well, what can I do that's in that same vein? Uh the same way that you get sequels for movies or anything else like that. So I started thinking and naturally I'm thinking about teams that had interesting personalities. That didn't quite win a championship, or if they did win one, did it in a way that was really unusual. So, the first team that came to mind for me, honestly, as I was trying to get something that would tap into nostalgia, was those Kings teams that almost beat the Lakers. Yeah. Um, their run was not for as long, but they got arguably even closer um and were arguably had the you know the the deck stacked against them even more than the Knicks did just as far as how much star power those Lakers teams had um and you could also make an argument that they were just kind of screwed over as far as the way the game was called and whether you know to this day people have questions about whether maybe whether there was something else going on um you know a, a disgraced NBA official was calling that series and, and whether or not there was something at play there with just how awful the calls were in one or two of those games and why the Kings didn't win. And so there's that element of it. Um, when it came down to it, there were a couple factors in me deciding not to go that route. Uh, one, I won't say this is the biggest factor, but one of them, um, writing about the Knicks was kind of a blessing just because there's such an enormous fan base of people yeah. all over the world, but certainly in New York and and even people that live in different places in America. It's just such a big market and such a, a, a big city that a lot of people are really, really, really passionate about the Knicks. Um, and that helps with book sales. Um, but the other thing that I think, you know, and, and that matters a lot to book publishers that are going to then try and turn around and sell your book somewhere. Uh, they want to know that they've got a base of people to sell it to. And the bigger that base is, the better for them um but the other thing that was a factor that that I think made me decide and I'm not really sure what it is with the Knicks I had a really definitive thing that I could kind of tie to it to kind of tell the story of what that team was and why they matter beyond just being interesting um again I think you can kind of tell the story of the 90s NBA through them because of how they influenced the rules changing And really influenced the sport to go from being kind of mud wrestling and football to being like this ballet style, you know, I'm going to put up a three pointer from 40 feet away style of basketball because the league took away some of the tactics that the Knicks were using to try to close the gap with the Bulls, um, made the game less physical. And in doing that, made it more rooted in skill, athleticism and uh, talent. So because of that you could explain that the Knicks were the reason that the rules shifted to bring in more of a modern style of basketball in the NBA that's more that's that's easier on the eyes I'll put it that way. Yeah. Um I don't know what that takeaway really is like what the legacy of those Kings teams is yeah other than saying that they got really close to winning which every era has a team that's really really close to winning Yeah. Um, That doesn't mean that there's not a good story to be told. I think there probably is. I just think that people like you, you have to try to view everything through every possible angle and through every people just to kind of say like, so what, you know, like some people are going to read the book, but when you're selling a book or when you're trying to sell a book, you want to be able to market it to everybody. And um, when you don't have, uh, people ask me a lot as I was promoting my book, Will I like this if I'm a Pacers fan? Will I like this if I'm like, I'm not, ai don't have a team that I like. I just like the 90s. Will I like it if I'm a 90s NBA fan? Will I like it if I'm not a sports fan? You know, and and I had reviews done. The Wall Street Journal did a beautiful review on the book in which they said you didn't have to even really be a a basketball or a sports fan to enjoy the book in the same way that you could maybe watch Moneyball and appreciate it or read it and appreciate it. That's kind of where I think it gets more difficult to write a book about the Kings because I don't know exactly what that factor is. Um, otherwise it's got all the same stuff. You basically had one superstar on yeah. uh, Chris Weber. You had a team that was good then and really hasn't been good since the Kings yeah. are about to break a record this year for the most seasons in a row without a playoff appearance in NBA history. I think this will be the, the 16th year in a row. Yeah. Um, they almost picked up the franchise and moved it to Seattle. Um, several years back. So there are a lot of parallels just as far as irrelevance and, and how beloved the team was at that time. Um, but I just, I, I, you know, so there were some hurdles with that. So I, I did think about that. I, I briefly thought about the Pistons team that I told you about in 2004. Yeah. That, um, that won the championship in that year with really no superstars, which I think will probably be the last time we ever see that. Right. Um, so, I, yeah, there there were different things I explored and thought about. But when it came down to it, I just it it didn't I don't know that there would have been enough of a fan base to really sell it the way. And, and you know, there is a vanity to it where once you have some taste of success with book sales, that then you want to try to tackle bigger subjects that appeal to more people. Yeah. Um, and And frankly, subjects that publishers will allow me to do but might say no to other people that propose the same idea. Um, because I think one of the important things to keep in my, my Knicks book, I didn't actually speak. I didn't get a chance to speak to any of the people on the cover. Uh, yeah. Starks, Ewing, Riley, Mason, Oakley, Mason obviously passed away in 2015, but the other four, for, for whatever reason, Oakley had a book coming out. Starks, um, works for the Knicks and the Knicks are not all that media friendly. Uh, Riley is still in the league and he, he does not talk about those New York, New York years very much. It's the one place he didn't win. And Patrick Ewing, I think it might've gotten back to him that I was asking some people in and around the team about some information about his extramarital marital affair. Yeah, And I think some of that might've gotten back to him as I was reporting out the book. Um, so he didn't talk to me either. So I didn't get any of them. So it, it, in some ways it maybe inspires confidence that if I'm writing about a team and can't get certain people to participate in it, um, that there's still a faith in me from the book publisher to do a project, even if I can't get everyone to participate and speak with me for it, because I can still get enough information from other people or try to get it through my research. So, um, so yeah, all that stuff was stuff I was considering. Um, Like I said, I do have another subject that I um, have agreed to do a book on um, and hopefully, hopefully in like the next week or two, I don't know that I'll announce it, um in the way that i did i announced that i was doing the next book in like 2019 right um and so then it just left people for two three years saying like when's this book coming (laughs) yeah so i'm not gonna do that this time but it will it will be out there i'm I'm sure people will find out over time or maybe even in the next few weeks that i am gonna do it and um I, i think it will at least make the rounds that way but i'm not uh I, it, it is a bigger subject, and it is a basketball-related one. But I'll leave it to the imagination a little bit. As the oh means
2: yeah, on. oh I can't wait. Uh, we maybe you should sell the uh, Sacramento Kings uh, story as uh, you know to Bill Simmons' Book of Basketball podcast. Here's here's some uh, content for you. That maybe it's uh, more of that kind of sure. Uh, I mean storyline, but
1: Kings Kings fans really care about those teams. And like I yeah. said, I, I do think there is something to be said for the nostalgia of tapping into a story about a team that hasn't been good in that long. Um, Like I said, I think at a certain point, you're almost there with a checklist of like five or six things that you feel like the book needs to have. And to me, the Kings had like at least four of them. And I feel like the other two, they maybe don't is like the fan base. That's just as big. And frankly, I don't know that there's any fan base other than maybe the Lakers or the bulls that is as big as the Knicks have. Um, and then just, that, again, like, why does this matter to people beyond just the team, the the fan base of that team? And I, I can't quite put my finger on what that is. Like, they were so much fun to watch, but I'm not sure that I can definitively answer what about that team, like what their legacy is or was, um, aside from just how close they got to beating the Lakers. And um, so it, it, it's 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 really close, but it wasn't quite there. But it's, it's, I think it's worth, I mean, a lot of books are like that. And I mean, you just have to really dig and dig and try to make them more interesting when they've got a little bit of a hole like that. But um, like books, far less interesting subjects have been tackled for books. Um, yeah. And I think that one would be a really good one.
2: Yeah. How long do you think Tom Thibodeau is going to last with uh, the Knicks at the moment? He seems to be uh, one of those coaches that, uh, I forget the, actually Marta being Bill Simmons, but uh, the proposal that your team's struggling, you know what we're going to do? We're going to drop Tom Thibodeau in there. He's going to get everything right. And then, you know what? Let's find another team and drop him in there <laughs> because it feels like he's such a good coach, but he's he wears down his players. That's what it appears to be anyway.
1: Yeah, no, there had been reports out there earlier this year that, you know, and I think you could kind of see it before the All-Star break that the Knicks were just not competitive and not playing very well, not seeming to play very hard. Something shifted, you know, after the all-star break, even in games that they lost, for instance, they lost a really hard fought game against the the Suns, who obviously are in first place by a mile. Um, And they lost on a basically half court last second shot um, where they were winning for a long stretch of that game in Phoenix. Um, So, you know, efforts like that and some other ones that they've had, you know, they beat the warriors. Um, I think there's something to be said For, you know, you can look at them and see they're trying harder. I, you know, I I do think that some things are interesting and maybe more worth considering than I gave them credit for initially. Um, They played a game the other night um, where they had an opportunity to win. They were within striking distance and Tom Thibodeau had rode the bench to um, try to make the comeback that they needed against Utah. And then brought in a couple of the starters, even though they had not played well, in particular, Julius Randle had yeah. played really, really poorly. And he brought Julius Randle in, in the last few minutes, like most coaches probably would, even if their superstar, their star player is struggling. And Randall was just awful. You know, before that, certainly after he brought him back in and, and the Knicks just let go of the rope entirely when that happened and Randall threw a temper tantrum and. You know, was going at Rudy Gobert, and I think fans have just kind of lost patience with that. But also, if Randall's not playing well, and Randall has been moody for you know, I won't say weeks because who knows, you know, when it starts or stops. But he's had games where he's kind of gone up to the other player and seemingly wanted to fuss and argue and potentially get into it with them. Uh, he's done it with referees. He's had an instance where he kind of almost pushed a laptop out of an assistant coach's hand when the assistant was trying to show him what Randall had done wrong on a defensive rotation. I think fans are just kind of reaching a tipping point with him at this point. And I think, you know, to your question about Thibodeau, there does come a time, I think, when people start to look at the situation and say, you're, you're almost condoning it or you're allowing it. If you bring him back into games where he's not playing well and the bench players are playing well and you sub one of them out to make room for him. And then he plays poorly and not just plays poorly, but does not represent himself well. Um, And so I've seen some people making the argument of like, look, this has been an underachieving year. There's no question about it. I think that part is accurate. Um, That's one thing. But I think when you start to talk about maybe accountability problem, that you know that maybe Thibodeau's not holding certain guys accountable or certainly not holding um, Randall accountable, I do think it starts to become a different question. Uh, I think you've seen enough growth from, from R.J. Barrett, which has been yeah. really uh, good to see, and I don't think you want to discount that. It's the one bright spot they've really had. Um, but I do think there's a frustration among a lot of people in the fan base with regards to how infrequently – some of the young players get opportunities even when Randall and other veterans play poorly um, or looking at someone like Deuce McBride who has not played much at all. I think he came off an 18 assist game in the G league um, yesterday or something like that, but doesn't get very much playing time at all with the, with the actual Knicks, despite the fact that Kemba Walker is obviously out of the rotation. And so is Derek Rose. Yeah. It's kind of like, why wouldn't you give him more of an opportunity? Why would you not give, Obi Toppin more of an opportunity, you know, if the other alternative is Tosh Gibson, um, yeah. you know, especially in a season where now the playoffs look extremely like a remote possibility. So I, I, I tend to lean towards the, the idea that I think he needs to get another opportunity. Tom yeah. Thibodeau, I, I think that this year has been about as disappointing as last year was probably exhilarating for the fans. Um, and so I think they more or less cancel each other out. I don't think that Tom Thibodeau was done a ton of favors from a roster standpoint. Yeah. Um, I think that there was a lot put into the, the Kimball Walker and Evan Fournier acquisitions. And it just has not panned out. Yeah. Um, so I'll be curious to see what happens, but I, I tend to think for stability purposes, but also just that, um, that, you know, I, I, I don't even think we'd be having a conversation now about if they would had the year they had now last year, yeah. And if they had last year's season this year instead, you wouldn't have made an argument last year that Thibodeau needed to go. So, I, I, trajectory matters, yes, but I don't think that it makes sense to let go of a coach two years in when he wildly overachieved the first year and now is underachieving in a second year. Give it a third year to see what happens. Um, y- you obviously need to see some improvement, but I think the roster could be better. And I think that, quite frankly, Tom could probably. Um, utilize the roster a little bit better as well. And we'll we'll, we'll see what happens. But I, I think it would be a mistake to let him go this soon. Um, I don't think that much was lost by waiting one more year to see what happens. Yeah,
2: this has been a fascinating season with, uh, you know, you, on the one hand, you've got like the Memphis Grizzlies not only being great and Ja Morant not only stepping up, but also the team is really good when he's out with injury. Uh, that's 14-2. Been- and two. Oh my lord it's so uh tasty and th- and then on the flip side you've got a team like Atlanta where you're like why why do you appear like it- last year you won the championship and you're a bit tired this year like it's a <laughs> it's a weird uh season in that regard uh, I I'll let you go with this the um who do you think is going to make the finals and uh, is it it's it's Phoenix's year isn't it uh, reg- you know if everything plays out correctly It it does feel that
1: way. I mean, my my preseason picks were Milwaukee and Utah. um, And obviously, I mean, Phoenix, it's funny. I thought that people were a little bit low on Utah and a little bit low on Phoenix, um, given that their rosters were basically the same, if not slightly enhanced from last year. And, you know, I I think Utah did a a pretty good job. Like, I think record-wise, they took a tumble when Rudy Gobert was out of the rotation. Donovan Mitchell was hurt for a while. When those guys are there, when their lineup is full, uh, when they're at full strength, they've been really hard to beat. But Phoenix, even when they, like you said, with Morant, Phoenix has been, I think they're 10 and four. When Chris Paul's out of the lineup, they're eight and three when Booker's out of the lineup. Um, And, you know, DeAndre Ayton has missed time. And it really has seemed like no matter who they plug in at center, I think, you know, DeAndre Ayton was kind of holding out for a max level contract. Um, you know, and the Suns didn't want to hand him one. It's interesting because he's had a great year, but I could almost still see them deciding not to give him max money just because no matter who they plugged in at center, uh, Kaminsky was great before he got hurt. Yeah, Um, Smith, they've had JaVale McGee. I mean, it's just a really, really good looking center rotation they have which speaks to kind of the interchangeability of that team. Um, Not to mention, you know, just how many guys, how deep that roster goes. Mikael Bridges is going to be in in the conversation for, you know, defense player of the year and well-deserved, you know, for him to be there. It's just an extremely, extremely balanced team that looks better than they did last year, quite frankly, in a year where the West looks stronger than it was last year. Yeah. Um, You know, 18-game winning streak, and then they've had other stretches where they've won – 18, 19 out of 20, um, you know, one or two streaks like that this year. So I I don't know how you wouldn't have them as your favorite coming out of the West or maybe just your favorite overall. Um, I, You know, if I were to say that I liked somebody else more than them, I'm not sure what I would be basing that on. Other than the fact of maybe you question Chris Paul not getting back soon enough or maybe him not being at full strength when he comes back or something like that. Um, you obviously can't rely on the fact that they're 10 and four in the regular season to make an argument that he wouldn't be meaningful enough for them to, you know, to really miss his absence in the, in the play, playoffs. But no, I mean, I think that has to be your favorite in the East. I've got no clue, but I will tell you <laughs> and another team that really did not give a whole lot of consideration to certainly at the beginning of the season and, or before it was Boston uh, yeah. just because they've been lights out. They just finished a four game trip where they swept all four games. They won the first three games of the, the trip, by more than 20, um, they ended up winning the last game of the trip against Oklahoma City last night by nine. Um, just the defense is, is stifling. The yeah. offense is, you know, is solid. And you've got two star-level scorers. You've got a lot of guys that are willing to move the ball. You've got a presence inside with Horford and, and Robert Williams. Um, I just, you know, there's some depth to that team. They just yeah. got Derek White at the trade deadline from the Spurs. Uh, you know, I did pick Ime Yudoka as coach of the year, uh, before the season. Um, so that is looking like a better pick now, although, you know, I think it would be hard not to give coach of the year to either Monty Williams or to, uh, to Taylor Jenkins from Memphis, but, um, you know, I, I, I don't know who will come out of the East, but you feel really good about Phoenix out of the West and, and, uh, Boston would not be, you could make much worse picks out of the East than Boston, given how well they've played lately.
2: Yeah, the uh, East is going to be fascinating. I'm I'm hoping that um, Steph Curry comes back in time and and Golden State is whole because I would like to, you know, it seems like uh, on you know Phoenix is a little bit classic and and uh, you know Golden State's a bit jazz and you want to kind of watch those two a meticulous offense against this kind of herky jerky offense and and I'd love to just see that. As a basketball fan could
1: see it. I mean, you could see it. And, uh, you know, I was writing about this this morning, um, for a story that went out this morning, a newsletter that I sent out this morning. Uh, you've got, you've got the, the Warriors in a tough spot, given that Steph is expected to miss at least the next two weeks and maybe, you know, closer to the rest of the regular season. In light of that, um, you have a situation where golden state could very easily fall. Out of the three spot in the West, I think they've got a two and a half game advantage on Utah. Yeah, um, they could very easily switch spots with Utah, or you could very easily see a situation where Dallas jumps both of them. Yeah, and finishes third, and and you would have a situation where um, you would have the Warriors and the Jazz finishing four and five, where they would be forced to play against each other in the first round. As it stands right now, even if the Warriors stay put and manage to hold on to the three spot. They would either be playing the Nuggets and the reigning MVP or be playing against uh, the Timberwolves who, you know, that might sound not that bad, but I mean, granted it would be a young team, but that's a team that, you know, is top 10 in offense and defense, which generally that profile kind of puts you in the list of contenders. Historically speaking, it's a team that has, at least two star level guys from a scoring standpoint, D'Angelo Russell, Malik Beasley. They've yeah. got some real defense with Jared Vanderbilt and uh, Patrick Beverly. Uh, that's not a team that I would be looking forward to playing. It's a team that I think has a lot of confidence that went down to the wire last night with Dallas in a game that had real um, implications for seeding and everything. But um, really, you know, since the all-star break, arguably the hottest team in the league in Minnesota. So Uh, None of those teams from, I mean, it's just kind of a a murderer's row when you look at really three through seven, but I would actually argue four through seven in particular between the jazz, a team that can get really hot and has been really good when they're at full strength this year, you know, maybe the most uh, devastating offense in the league at full strength. Um, So them Dallas that, you know, all of a sudden plays elite defense, which was a huge Achilles heel for them before. Uh, Spencer Dinwiddie is fitting in extremely well. Uh, yes. So you've got them, at you know, sitting in fifth right now. And then again, a Denver team that may or may not get Jamal Murray back, may or may not get Michael Porter Jr. back to go with a reigning MVP. Um, and a team that, again, has overachieved, you know, like they did last year. And and then you've got Minnesota, who's, you know, Carl Anthony Towns just went for 60. And you've yeah. got uh, uh, Anthony Edwards, who's getting healthier and healthier. And we know we've seen what he's able to do, you know, as a young guy. (laughs) So none of those teams are teams I would be looking forward to playing, particularly, you know, the Warriors aren't going to be afraid of anyone. I I don't think they're worried about that, but I do think there's something to be said for just wanting to gel and have the cohesiveness that they had during those title runs that, you know, I think understandably would not be there right away with Clay and and Draymond and, and Steph having played essentially a game and a quarter. Yeah. Together over the last one thousand days or so, and uh, that's not much. Um, you've got other guys that have stepped up this year. Jordan Pool Wiggins played an all-star caliber first half, but um, yeah, Kaminga's looking. You would good. love for yeah, you would love for your guys to have a little bit more cohesiveness than that. Um, and the playoffs are always a little bit tough to to knock off the rust. I mean, you can do it. Steph has done that. Ask Portland how Steph yeah. is when he's rusty, and you know how quickly he can knock off that rust. In the same game sometimes, but, uh, but you would prefer to have a little bit more time together than just, you know, one or two games in the regular season or, hey, now we're, we've got a full team, you know, the playoffs have started, like it's not ideal. And I think anybody would admit that.
2: Man, I was watching uh, the Golden State Warriors a few years back, and I was thinking, you know what? I want to go back to the states and watch them play. Like I was lucky enough to have seen, you know, LeBron and uh, with uh, the Miami Heat. I always was once again. I was an early adopter of uh, uh, Dwayne Wade because of Pat Riley. You know, I put my flag with that guy. You know, in that draft, etc. And and I was watching the uh, Golden State Warriors play, and I thought I just love Stephen Clay in particular. The joy they have when the other one's doing well, it, it feels to me what you always kind of, uh, you know, preach what sp- uh, team sport should be. And so I thought, yes. I really want to watch those two play together. Steph kind of plays with a joy that kind of reminds me a bit of Magic and Clay's just so unique and funny and, and wonderful to watch. And then two days later, <laughs> it was the game where Clay tore his meniscus and I was like, what? I know. <laughs> like I was I, know. I was ready to book the flights and, uh, and then and then all these you know setbacks and then you you finally got to watch them i think Draymond Clay and Steph played like 11 minutes together and you're like great this is something to build on and then a new injury I sport i know yeah we'll see what happens i mean they're they're yeah. they're going to be
1: fascinating you can't rule them out i mean i know for me i picked them to win that year even with Durant being out at the beginning of that series and then obviously getting hurt during it um I figured that, you know, even with him out that the Warriors could still win the series because I think there was that stat where they'd gone something like 38 and 2 in their last 40 games together, just that trio, yeah. even without Durant being part of the mix, like they know how to play together. Um, but now again, we're talking about years since they've yeah. had to do that and um it's different doing that in a game where you're playing against Washington and you've got your whole crowd behind you versus going on the road in a you know a hostile environment where the fans are very much rooting against you and um you know it, it's just different like to me clay has had you know a breakout moment or two since coming yeah. back but he still doesn't look all the way there to me and, and i don't think anyone expected him to look that way after two two and a half years off whatever it was yeah. um it, it it takes time uh And I feel like he has forced it a little bit just as far as trying to get his rhythm back where he, you know, will post someone up for four or five seconds, just desperate to get a shot off because he just wants to be involved that badly and wants to get back in a rhythm that badly. But it's something that, you know, even when you do that, you still need to develop a rhythm with the other guys that are the other star players out there. And there just hasn't been an opportunity. So I'm, I'm fascinated to see it. I mean, sign me up to watch any first round series basically at this point. I mean, yeah, very good chance at this point that you're going to get a one eight matchup in the East where it very easily could be Miami and Brooklyn or something like that. <laughs> in the first round, which would be <laughs> yeah. insane between that. Or, I mean, if we're talking about a, a two seven, um, or, 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 you know, a two seven matchup where you'd have Memphis and the nuggets, you know, like, yeah, Morant against, you know, against, uh, Ah, uh, Jokic or something like that, or a three-six with the Warriors and anybody the 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 T-Wolves. You know, if, if we end up with that matchup with the Jazz and the Warriors like that, just just brutal that such great teams have to play against each other that early, or such you know fascinating teams or such great players. But uh, it's been a weird year where the Bulls were in first place for most of the year yeah. in the East, and now are struggling just to avoid the plan. So it's a, uh, it, it's been a weird year, but it's going to make for a good
2: drama down the stretch. Oh yeah. No, I can't wait. Uh, look, I've got to let you go. I could talk to you for hours uh, as an NBA fan. Uh, you know, I loved your book, uh, but uh, as, particular a fan of yours I've loved your appearances on podcasts and so this has been a a, a real pleasure to be able to hang out with you and and have this chat and uh, uh, good luck with the the next book I will uh, be waiting for it with bated breath so thank you very much. Thank
1: you so much I really appreciate you again for having me on
2: Thank you to Chris for taking the time to talk to me about his book. Uh, God, he, he's so nice to listen to as well. Like, I, I, it's just these lovely uh, tone to his voice. And uh, that's one of the great things about listening to him, especially as, you know, I'm a big NBA fan. Uh, you know, it's like, oh, this is really gentle. And I'm getting a lot of uh, NBA gossip. This is great. So... Uh, look, if you enjoyed listening to Chris and you want to check out his book, maybe go and uh, to one of your local independent stores. You know they're the places that are doing it really hard at the moment. So if you can order it or buy it from one of your independent stores that's nearby, maybe check that out. And then if you if they don't have it or they can't get it in for some reason, uh, you know, there's the big sites. You you know the sites, but maybe bookdepository.com might be the best bet to go because it feels like the... it feels like the only reliable site in recent months. Anyway, I don't want to tell you how to buy a book, but th- that's just a little suggestion. A uh, big thank you also to Anthony, our Patreon subscriber for the episode. If you'd like bonus podcasts, scripts, etc., please head over to patreon.com forward slash Justin Hamilton underscore Big Squid and you will find it here that suits you. If money is tight, and look, 2022 is... It's a tricky year, isn't it? And I fully understand uh, that a lot of... Uh, us are struggling in lots of different ways so if you would like to support the podcast but money is uh, you know a, a bit of an issue at the moment you can join our private facebook page or how about leaving us a top review on apple podcast maybe recommend us to your friends there's other ways you can uh, support us without uh, having to give up any coin but uh if you want some bonus stuff, it's over there. Uh, I'll be back next week with two more podcasts. There will be the Severance recap on Monday, and then the dollops. Gareth Reynolds joins me for a very fun chat. We look, <laughs> we actually recorded this interview the day after the Oscars slap, uh, so there's some thoughts there, but mainly it is a fun catch-up with gareth before he comes out and he of course is uh, about to tour with dave anthony for their latest round of shows for the dollop and their solo shows so that will be all next week and if you're on patreon you will get the next dispatches from the fury road podcast as well let's finish today's episode with a quote from nba championship coach pat riley If you have a positive attitude and constantly strive to give your best effort, eventually you will overcome your immediate problems and find you are ready for greater challenges. Until then.